I'd like to invite our children, fifth grade and under, if you have not already begun making your way to the kids' zone, this is the time to do it. God bless you kids as you go and teachers as you teach. Uh, we're really grateful for the way the Lord has blessed our church with growth in our kids' zone and youth ministry over the last several years. Um, if you have not seen what this place looks like on a Wednesday night, I invite you to come out around 8 o'clock um, and wear, you know, maybe if you have like a catcher's mask and some body armor, uh, you could make your way through the gauntlet that this room becomes with all the balls and things flying everywhere. It's really exciting to see 30, 40, 50 kids in here all at one time uh, having the time of their lives. So we praise the Lord for that. Um, a quick note before we jump in here, uh, just a sort of a, an, an advisory for you for next Sunday. It's the first Sunday of the month, and here at our church, we uh, receive communion on every first Sunday. And traditionally, in fact, when I say traditionally, I mean as long as I've been here. So it'll be 10 years in October that I've been here. We have done communion pretty much the same way at the same time, not just in the month, but at the same time in the service. We always have communion at the end of the service. Um, but the Lord has laid a, a conviction in my heart. It actually began several years ago, um, but it has, he has brought it back with a vengeance in recent months um, that we shouldn't be having communion with a third of our congregation not in the room with us. So instead of having communion next Sunday with all the people in the kids zone over there while we're in here, uh, we're gonna move communion up into the middle of the service so that we can have everyone together. So that parents can be with their children and the whole church can be together. And I know it's a change from tradition, but you know what? We're not here for tradition. We're here for Christ. And uh, I think this will edify the body and bring him glory. And so I'm looking forward to that beginning next Sunday. We'll talk more about that then when the time comes. Uh, this morning, however, we're going to be picking up where uh, Robert Jackson left off last week there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So if you grabbed one of the guest Bibles in the back, which are, again, our gift to you if you don't have a Bible or would like one in that translation, I preach from the New Living Translation, not because it's the greatest and best of all time, uh, but I find that it's easy to read in public. Um, but you'll notice when I preach that if there's something in the NLT that I don't like, I'll point it out because um, I want to be fair to the text not to a particular translation. That's not my concern here. I want to know what God's word says. Um, and it just so happens the NLT is easy to preach in public, to read and preach um, in public. And so that's why we use that translation here. Um, but we'll be on page 923 if you grabbed one of those guest Bibles back there. I'm thankful that Robert filled in for me last week. Um, believe it or not, that actually was scheduled uh, actually for quite a while for him to preach. Uh, what was not scheduled was for me to be sick. But it's interesting how the Lord works those things out in his own good timing. And uh, so I, I praise the Lord not only for wellness, but for uh, an, a, an abundance of people here who can faithfully proclaim the word of God um, and for the Lord's precious providential ways to uh, carry out his work with us or without us. He will, he was, he's going to do what, he, what he's going to do, and we just want to be a part of what he's doing. So uh, praise be to God. Here this morning in our text, we'll see Paul continuing this a strong pastoral exhortation to a church that is in trouble. A church deeply divided uh, among its congregation. It's dealing with deep Im immoral issues. It is a church that is rife with all manner of sexual immorality and idolatries and struggles pertaining to a phrase that they had basically taken from Paul himself, but then missed its meaning entirely. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. For those of you who've been here with us, this is not new to you. Um, it's, that, it's that phrase. You can see it in this chapter, again, there in verse 23, but he's also already said it back in chapter 6 a couple of times. He's quoting the Corinthians who had been quoting him, but they'd been missing completely what he's talking about. There in verse 23, their quote that he's now challenging because of its source of all sorts of struggle and problems within their congregation is, I am allowed to do anything, or I am free to do anything. That's what they meant by it. I can do whatever I want. I can do it any time I want. It doesn't matter because I'm free in Christ. Now, you're probably already scrambling to think of a modern-day equivalent to that, and uh, I think you could find uh, certain places within the church or places that call themselves the church, expressions like God is love, which by the way, God is love. And we have spent many sermons over the years here exploring and probing the depths of that. I think that's uh, perhaps the most profound 
truth about God in the scriptures and it's bound up in his nature as persons in communion, Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune life of God. You cannot talk about God being love apart from being, him being triune, but you also cannot talk about God apart from him being holy. He is love, but he's holy love. And churches, many churches around us today have bought into this notion that because God is love, well, then there's really ultimately no moral obligation upon my life. He'll just forgive. He's love. He's loving. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I violate his commands. It doesn't matter how I step outside the boundary lines that he has established for my life. It doesn't matter how I violate his creation. It doesn't matter because in the end, everything is permissible. Everything is tolerated with the exception, of course, ironically enough, except intolerance. Isn't that funny? The only thing that cannot be tolerated today is intolerance, which if I'm not mistaken, is intolerance, but we'll get to that another time. We live in such a culture, one that has sacrificed truth at the altar of tolerance and freedom to be and do whatever you want. But it's interesting because you cannot sacrifice truth in the hopes of being free because Jesus always connects truth and freedom together. He says, by what will you be free? By truth. It is truth that sets you free. You cannot be free apart from his truth. Now, perhaps the Corinthians were guilty of something that many churches throughout church history have been guilty of, and perhaps many individual churches throughout their own history of essentially overreacting to a particular error, but then overreacting to the equal opposite error. I mean, I, I mentioned the other week, you know, the, the wide array of of problems that Paul dealt with in the, the churches within his sort of pastoral sphere. And you remember the church in Galatia? They were erring in a pretty terrible way like the Corinthians, but in a totally, on the total other end of the spectrum, weren't they? If the Corinthians were over here, you know, in, in their erring in their license to do whatever they wanted, well, the church in Galatia over here was erring in their legalism. And so you can see a church that hears Paul's response to the legalism, which is what? Well, freedom in Christ. Christ has freed you from obeying the law or obeying laws as a way to be made right with God. Because God has freed you from that, you're free in Christ. But then the Corinthians take this message, this beautiful gospel message, and then they swing way over to this side in their overreaction to a place of license. And and. Well, both are death to a congregation. Neither ends of the spectrum are the gospel. And whenever a church errs in one of these directions, it often goes badly wrong because both of them are the opposite of what Christ has come to provide us. So how does Paul, the, the consummate pastor here, yes, he was an evangelist, he was a missionary, but he had a pastor's heart, how does Paul navigate between these two dangerous extremes in dealing with this topic of Christian freedom? And he's not just now talking about it in chapter 10. This is chapter 7, chapter 8. I mean, this is something that's been going on for some time now. If you go back to chapter 7, there in around verses 22 and 23, he's, he's, he's basically saying, Christ has freed you from your enslavement to the world in order to be a slave to him. Isn't it interesting? And you're probably thinking, man... <laughs> I guess I'm always going to be a slave to something. And, and the Bible says, well, yeah. I mean, that's part of what it means to be the creature and not the creator. You are designed and created to serve something. It's not the world. It's not the flesh. And it's not the devil. It is Christ and Christ alone. So how's Paul navigating all these issues, starting back in chapter 7, which was really his beginning to... Um, dive deeper into the problems that he was addressing in the chapters beyond, or, or the chapters before, how does he do that? Well, we're going to look here in our passage at what I'm calling several rules or several guidelines for navigating this tension together as the church. I'm going to be reading here in chapter 10, beginning in verse 31. I'm going to be ending in chapter 11, verse 1. In chapter 11, verse 1, even though there's a, a chapter break between um, uh, 10, 33, and 11.1, you'll notice in the NLT that there's not a section break. And that is a, a, correct, uh, a correct way of putting the, the passage together. 11.1 completes the thought that begins here in 10.31. So we're going to read those together uh, right now, beginning in verse 31. Paul says, So whether you eat or drink, 
Or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. I too try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that many may be saved. And you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Okay, you note takers. Rule number one comes from the first verse there in verse 31 is this. In whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. One of the most common and arguably one of the most tragic things that I witness in my time as a pastor in Christian ministry is what I'm calling Christian compartmentalism or compartmentalization. It's a lot of syllables in a word together, and I hope you forgive me if I put the, the emphasis on the wrong syllable. But uh, compartmentalization, Christian compartmentalization, is basically this idea that if you, you take your life and you look at all that you are and all that you do in every aspect and every dimension of what makes you you, you essentially allocate certain parts of that to God and certain parts to something or someone or to your else or to yourself. Right, it's this idea that I have, I have these different areas of my life that, that when I come to Christ, I set those things apart to him. I give him this thing. I give him my something. I give him this thought or this part of this. But then over here, well, that's, that's for me. Right, and so, so I'll, I'll go to church on Sunday. Thank you for coming here. I love seeing the, the people of God gathered together in this space the Lord has blessed us with. Praise be to God for corporate worship. Thank you for coming. But oftentimes, we, we come on Sunday mornings. Um, sometimes we come on Wednesday nights. But you know what? Monday through Friday, and well, especially Saturday, that's me time. Now, we don't say that. We know better than to say that. But do the actions and attitudes of our lives align with the words we say? Or how about this? I tithe. Well, these days, tithing is, well, that's not, you know, particularly popular anymore. And I, and I agree that, that, that I don't, you might get mad, some of you are, some of you are going to get mad at me no matter what I say here. So I'm just going to make everybody, I'm an equal opportunity, you know, make, make you mad person. I'm, if I leave here and everyone is mad, then I feel like I've done my job and I've served the Lord faithfully. Um, some of you think tithing is, is ridiculous and it doesn't have any place in your life whatsoever. And other, others of you view tithing as like this, it's like the 11th commandment in the Old Testament that carries over into the new. And I, I'm not on either of those bandwagons. Um, I think tithing is a beautiful principle for life. I think it's biblical. I think it's right. And we do it as a family. But tithing is not, it's not a requirement or a commandment for the Christian. That has been fulfilled in Christ. And so Jesus comes along and says, hey, good for you for giving your 10%. Well, that lady over there, she just gave everything. Why? Is it because 10% belongs to God and 90% belongs to you? No. 100% is his. And we say that, we say that dutifully, but do our words and our actions align? Or what are some other things, some other areas? God gets part of my thought life. God gets part of my affections. God gets part of my ambitions, but not all. Just this week, I heard a testimony from someone who's talking about a previous time in their life, and they were they were articulating this very thing, this, this double life. You know, I had this, this church life where I came and I was serving and leading and people, you know, saw me in a certain way. But then in other parts of my life, I was with a different group of friends and I was partying. I was doing this, things completely opposed to the life of a, 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 a biblical life as a Christian. And then the mentality was, well, I'll just ask God for forgiveness later. Is that the kind of life that God has in mind for his people? This radically compartmentalized life where we give some things to him but not all things to him. I think to live that way is to misunderstand the nature of freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ means freedom from enslavement to the world and to the flesh 
and to the devil. It means freedom from obedience to the law as a means of being made right with God. It means freedom also to willfully give all of ourselves over to him. Every part of my life. To, to come to this place where, where, it's, where it's not just, you know, Savior, Santa, Jesus, but Jesus is King of all kings and Lord of all lords over all of me. And if he is that for you this morning, then what should the primary concern and focus of your life be? Paul says it right here in verse 31. It should be for the glory of God. Imagine that. Every aspect of your life committed to the glory of God. Now, when we talk about the glory of God, we can talk about it in a couple of different ways. One is the intrinsic glory of God, and one is the ascribed glory of God. And I'm going to kind of describe what those two things are here. An intrinsic glory is that glory which God possesses within himself. It's something that is unique to him, something that is exclusive to him. It's not something that anyone can give him. It's not something that anyone can take away. It's something that belongs to him just by virtue of who he is, even from before the beginning of time. It's what the scriptures say in the Psalms and elsewhere. It is the splendor of his holiness. It is the beauty of his majesty. It is the essence of who he is. God alone is utterly transcendent. And God alone is utterly self-sufficient. And God is complete and whole within himself. He didn't create creation so that his creation would then supply him something that he lacked. And if you think that's why God created, you missed the point of creation. It wasn't, man, I'm, I'm lonely, I'm bored, there's something incomplete in me, so if I create something in addition to me, it will fill what is lacking. That is not why God created. God created that his creation would reflect what he already is and what he already has, not that it would complete it. And that is a huge distinction that has to be made whenever we're talking about doing things for God's glory. It's never because he needs us to. As if if we don't do all things for the glory of God, then somehow God will be lacking or missing something in some way. That's not what Paul is telling us. I like this quote from A.W. Tozer in uh, The Knowledge of the Holy. It's there on the screen for you. It says, We're all human beings suddenly to become blind Still the sun would shine by day and the, and the stars by night, for these owe nothing to the millions who benefit from their light. So, were every man on earth to become atheist, it could not affect God in any way. He is what he is in himself without regard to any other. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfections. To doubt him takes nothing away. And this glory, this intrinsic glory, the glory of who God is within himself is the glory that Jesus Christ came to reveal. Jesus Christ, who alone is the Son of God. As the scriptures say, the very image of God, the very word of God, the very self-expression of who God is. He is the one who radiates the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. If you want to have an insight at all into the, who God is, into the very heart and essence of, of, the, of the God that is, you look to Jesus. John says in his introduction, we have seen the glory of God. It is the glory of the only begotten Son, full of grace and full of truth. Jesus reveals God as God really is. And that, friends, is pretty shocking, especially when you, when you consider what is the moment in the life and ministry of Jesus that reveals God most clearly. You know the answer already, don't you? It's the cross. It's the cross where Jesus prayed for the glory of God to be made manifest. That's where the world sees God best. But Paul, here in our passage here, he's not talking about the intrinsic glory of God. He's talking about doing things for the glory of God, that God would be glorified, that glory would be ascribed to him, that it would be given to him, that he would receive attention, that he would receive renown, that he would be praised, that those things would be placed upon God because of our lives. Not because he's lacking it, but because he is rightly deserving of it. And that's the question for you and for me this morning, as we're thinking about what Paul is saying here in rule number one, 
is, is that true of every part of my life? Does every part of my life, in some form or fashion, result in praise and honor and glory going to God? Or is it going somewhere else? And all you do, the apostle says, do it all for the glory that should be and rightly ascribed to him. Listen, we're, remember we're, what we're doing here. We're looking at Paul's rules and guidelines for a church that's in all this mess. And his first point is getting, getting the vertical right. You have to get the vertical right if you're ever going to fix any of these other problems. So rule number one, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And then rule number two, it's in, the, in verse 32 here. The NLT says, do not give offense to anyone. Um, that's not the, maybe the best translation of the words there. It's perhaps more literally... Um, If you're writing notes down, this is your number two. Do not cause others to stumble. So give glory to God. Don't cause anyone else to stumble or perhaps be harmed. That's another uh, way the words there can be translated, stumbled or harmed. And that's the, the logical next guideline as we're working through how to be a church that navigates these extremes as it pertains to Christian freedom. How do I so order my life that I'm not violating and going you know, in one of these extremes, and Paul says, God first, don't cause one another to stumble. Yes, the vertical orientation in the life of a Christian is first. That is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would be 100% focused upon who he is and what he rightly deserves from me in my life. But the Bible always connects the vertical dimension with the horizontal. Because the greatest commandment comes with two parts, doesn't it? Yes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what? Your neighbor is yourself. It's always connected. To do one is to do the other. You can't have one without the other in the Christian life. Whenever we think about Christian freedom in life together, it must be constrained by this truth. Whether it's for the Corinthians back in the first century dealing with this issue pertaining to um, food sacrificed to idols, or whether it's in our own 21st century context, and, and plug in whatever situation you're going through, and whatever your struggle or you know dilemma in your life, um, or in the life of of this church. As we're thinking about these things, is it constrained by this truth? And and as we assess that, the question that I have, this is question number two, for you and for me, is: Is there anything in my life? Is there anything in your life? that is coming between Jesus and someone on their way to him? Is there anything that causes, anything that you're doing or anything that you're not doing that might be causing someone else to come up short? Look, you're you're right if you're already thinking, well, Paul says don't give offense to anybody, but man, isn't the Christian life like inherently offensive? And the answer is, well, of course it is. To the world, there will always be an, an offensive dimension to our Christian witness and testimony. I am very, very well aware of just how offensive my last sermon in this pulpit was in the eyes of the world. You, no one has in here has to tell me how offensive it was. Um, no one has to tell me what, what people in the world and many within the church what they think when they hear what we talked about two weeks ago. Um, I get it. But the whole time in the preparation leading up to that, in, in all the fear and trembling, it was never fear to say the truth. I have absolutely no problem standing here and telling you what the Bible clearly says. And I never will have problem doing that. My fear and trembling was, I don't want to be a source of offense. Me. If the word offends you, okay, but I don't want to be the source of the stumbling. I don't want to come between someone in the truth of his word. And many times, Christians are taking an offensive word of God to a culture, and they're doing it in an offensive manner. Paul says, no, we have to be careful here. We have to be careful. The gospel on its own will always be offensive to the world. It is good news, but it's good news that always begins with bad news. I preached a sermon back in Advent. You might remember it. Well, I know you don't remember it. No one remembers my sermons. I barely remember my sermons. But the internet remembers my sermons, so you can find it in the memory of the internet. Uh, it was, the title was, The Bad News, Good News. You can't even begin to talk about 
the good news of Jesus Christ until you start, unfortunately, with the bad news. The gospel proclaims the universal sinfulness and lostness of all people. Ooh, that's bad news. The Bible proclaims that there is only one solution for that problem. That's offensive. It's not in another religion. It's not in self-help tools. It's not in therapy. It's not in politics. It's not in anywhere else in your life. You can't do it yourself, and no one else can do it for you but by Jesus Christ alone. There's only one name under heaven and earth by which man may be saved, and it is not my name or your name. That's offensive. It's exclusive. It's inclusive in that it's, it's Jesus gave his life for all the world, but it's exclusive in the sense that no one in the world can come to God except by him. No one. The Bible, in its good news, is offensive because this singular solution demands a personal response. And it's one that has eternal consequences. That is offensive in itself. You do not need to add to the offense of the gospel. Peter says, Christ, the cornerstone, is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to those who do not believe and, and those who disobey God. But you and I are to be a stumbling block to nobody. That doesn't mean that you just, you know, step out of the fight and just be neutral because you don't want to offend anybody. Well, that's not what we're called to be and do either. You're called to be salt and light. So it takes great wisdom. It takes great Wisdom and power from the Holy Spirit of God himself to help us be salt and light and get into the fight and proclaim the gospel with truth and integrity, but to do it in a way that causes no one to stumble. Man, how on earth do we do that? Well, well, we have his word and we have his spirit, and that should be enough. And we have one another. If by our lives you and I lead men and women and boys and girls to the life-changing truth of God, and they are offended by that truth and resist and turn away, that is one thing. But if by our actions and our attitudes and by our tactics, what we do and what we don't do, if we are preventing someone from coming to the life-changing truth to begin with, well, that's something else entirely. You and I must be careful. You and I must be careful. The God, of, the God is love narrative today is death if it's divor divorced from God's holiness and truth. And there's a lot of peddling that God is love out there. But it's this idea that God is love and it doesn't really impact your life. And that is a lie. It absolutely has to impact your life. The Corinthians had so given themselves over to license that they had become barriers to the gospel for those who needed it most. And that can be true of us if we're not careful today. And it's not just, by the way, for those who err on the side of license. It is also true for those who err on the side of legalism. That can be just as much a stumbling block to people. And many of you probably were raised or have attended or had some exposure or experience to a church over here. And what's your testimony? Did you thrive in your walk with Christ? Did you see people being, having their lives transformed by the power of the gospel? Did you see people living victoriously over sin? Ambassadors for Christ in the world? I dare say, you didn't. In fact, you may never have seen that once in your life until you got out of that context. I saw this from a friend's post on social media the other day. It said, a liberal church says, you are welcome here and do not have to clean up your life. A legalistic church says, you aren't welcome here until you clean up your life. Christ's church says, you are welcome here. Oh, and let me tell you about Jesus who will change your life. Come as you are, but he's not going to leave you as you come. He's going to change you. And you and I must never, ever, ever be guilty of tripping up anyone who is making their way to him. Rule number three, be committed to the good of others. That doesn't mean being wishy-washy. It doesn't mean being a floor mat. It doesn't mean being all sheepish and nice. I, I addressed that two weeks ago. You're, you're seeing new, 
new reformed, not nice Pastor Sean. I'm tired of being nice. I'm not being nice anymore because nice isn't getting our culture anywhere. It doesn't mean we get mean and nasty and vile like we see other people doing, but it means, yes, we be kind. That is a fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those, by the way, are a beautiful summary of the heart of God. But they're also to be the fruit that are manifest in our lives. And kindness absolutely is in there. But I never heard niceness as a fruit of the Spirit. Done being nice. You and I need to quit being nice and always do what is right. Which will always have the glory of God as a primary concern. And the good, the ultimate, the real, the true good of another in mind. Paul here is a great example. Now listen, out of context, Paul can be... Paul can really be misunderstood here, and especially in the NLT, the way it renders it here. It's not my favorite. Um, Look look at verse 33 in the beginning of that verse here. (laughs) In this case, I want you to not be like Paul. As we think about this as English-speaking people and the way it's worded here, the NLT says, I too try to please everyone in everything I do. Is Paul a people pleaser? (laughs) Is Paul some politician? who's just trying to curry favor with all the different factions and all the different groups. Well, I don't think that's Paul at all. I mean, he's the same guy. If we were to go back into chapter three of this very letter here, he said something like this. When I was with you, I had to talk to you like I was talking to a child. In other words, you're a bunch of babies. In fact, he says, you still are. It's not something you say when you're trying to get someone to vote for you, is it? Imagine if the next presidential election... That's the campaign slogan of one of the candidates. You're just a bunch of babies. It may be true, but it's not going to win you any votes. Chapter 4, verse 3, as for me, he says, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by anyone. He doesn't care what they think of him. Not because he's a jerk or he's self-centered, but quite the opposite. His life is bound up completely in the glory of another. He's not propelled and motivated by what his reputation is in the community or what people think of him or the accolades people might lavish upon him that when he shows up, the, the carpet rolls out and he strolls through the crowd to their, you know, to their acclaim. That's not Paul's concern. He doesn't care lick about that stuff. I don't care what you think about me, he says. I'm not motivated by it or by anybody else's opinion of me or by, or by my own reputation. I don't care. Chapter 5, did he beat around the bush and kind of sheepishly address the problem there in Corinth? No. He says, I can't believe the reports I'm hearing. I can't believe that the church of Christ would be marked by such scandal. He's outraged. And let's throw something from Galatians in there since I brought the Galatians into the conversation earlier. Galatians 1.10 He's not going to compromise truth to fit in or be accepted. Is that a people pleaser? Is that a politician? No. So the question is, how can someone in one breath say these things and act this way, as we just listed here, yet in the next breath say, in verse 33, I try to please everyone in everything I do. Well, it's, it's not him being nice. It's not him being the people pleaser. It's not him, him being political. He's describing the type of Christian life that always seeks the ultimate good of another. A life that is, and this is probably a better translation than pleasing, a life that is acceptable to. I had a job right out of high school uh, working at a, a Kroger I've told you about this before, my days as a milk placement technician in the dairy. <laughs> That's, um, well, I'm not going to tell you what the, other, what the guys in the frozen foods call me. Let's just, let's just say it was derogatory and it wasn't very nice, so I'm not going to tell you what they call me. So I came up with a better title for my position, uh, milk placement technician. And I worked with a guy who did not, he was not a Christian, he was offended by the gospel, and he made a very clear just as I made it very clear that I was a Christian and I never wasn't cramming it down his throat and I wasn't forcing him to agree with me. I wasn't debating him to win an argument. I just was, I was being a good coworker and a friend. And, and initially there was, there was a little bit of this going on in the, the dairy. He was actually my boss too, so it made it even more frictiony. But over time, he came to realize that my life 
was acceptable. My go- the gospel was not, but my life was. Because he could see that my life was accommodating to his need. It cared about him. He, he, could, he could detect intuitively real love. I'm not saying I did it great. I know I didn't do it great. I was in a really bad place in my own walk in those days. But there was something in my heart and in my life that he knew was there that was real and was genuine and it was good. Even though he rejected it for himself, he got it. And I think that's what Paul's talking about here. And the NLT is dead wrong when it says, and when it renders verse 33 as saying this, it says in the NLT, I don't just do what is best for me, I do what is best for others too. That just and that too is not in the original language. Because when you insert those words in there, it sounds like you can go about doing what is best for you just so long as you're also doing what is best for others. And I will tell you, as a father and as a husband, that many times what is best for someone else is not what is best for me. Because I have to die to myself. I have to say no to myself. I have to make sacrifices in my life if someone else is going to have what's best in their life. The NLT is dead wrong. I get what they're trying to say, but they're wrong. I think the NIV has it right. I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. What are you seeking in your life? Is it what's best for you? What satisfies you? What brings you joy or happiness or some sense of delight? And it may come at the expense of another? Or are you willing to say, I will, I will do whatever it takes at whatever expense to me that someone else would have the ultimate good in their life? Sounds an awful lot like what Paul says elsewhere in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, literally in the language, do nothing for your own interest, but for the interest of others. And almost all of our, our English translations say, do nothing for your interest only, but also for the interest of others. The exact same mistake this text has, made, has right here in the NLT. There is no also and two. There is no just or two. It is do what is right for another. Do what benefits another, never for yourself. And you're probably sitting there thinking, there's no way that this sinful, human, broken, flawed, and hurting heart can ever get there. And I can tell you, by his grace, it can. It can. Because I told you earlier that the gospel was bad news, good news. That's the good news of it. That when we come to Jesus and we put all of our eggs in his basket. You like that? Easter coming up in a couple weeks. A little paganism there, the eggs and all that stuff little furry rabbit hopping around. When we put all of our life into his hands, all of the brokenness, all the pain, all of the hurting, every fractured piece of me, he mends it. He mends it. He doesn't just bubble wrap it. (laughs) Thank you for the bubble wrap. Thank you for the blood that covers me. But all thank you for the blood that cleanses me and heals me, makes me more like you. Paul says, have this mind in you, the mind of Christ. Have his mind, his attitude, his heart, his disposition. May all that defines and describes him come to define and describe you. Call it what you want. Call it sanctification, uh, growth in grace, maturity, perfection. I don't care what word you use. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Rule number four, and this is the last one. It comes from the last part of verse 33. Do all for the glory of God. Do nothing to cause another to stumble. Do only which is good for others why? Why? That many may be saved. Seek, rule number four, seek that many may be saved. Would you, can you imagine what that church in Corinth would have looked like if it was filled with people so devoted to Jesus, so oriented around the ultimate good and needs of others, and so committed to the purposes of God that all of their Christian freedom, 
all of it was focused on seeking and saving the lost? How much wasted time and energy and resources and relationships were spent on their rivalries and their factions and their immoralities and their idolatries and their bickering and their lawsuits and all the rest that was going on there. In the same way, how many churches today are wasting the world's time as people all around are suffering and dying and going to an eternity in hell because we're worried about the color of our carpet or which instruments are on the platform or which songs we're singing or what lights are on we spend all this time and all this money. We have all the, all, the, all the comforts and we have all the things. And you go to some places and it's like just extravagance upon extravagance. And you're thinking, there's people right here who are dying spiritually. Imagine the church in Corinth. If that had been their focus. I wonder if the nature of the letter would have been a little different. <laughs> I wonder if you didn't have to address all these things, would it have looked like what we have today? I'm kind of, in a way, this is selfish, I know. In a way, I'm kind of happy that they had all these troubles because we have this letter that we can now look to in all of our troubles. God has this beautiful way of taking all of our missteps and mistakes and doing, turning something beautiful out of it that benefits others. I mean, it's, it's like we're living out everything I'm talking about here. So thank you. Church in Corinth for being sexually immoral and idolatrous. So we know how to deal with our own sexual immorality and our own idolatry. Thank you for that. <laughs> I think the letter would have been very different. But it, it begs a question for you and me, doesn't it? What are we willing to say no to in our lives? What are we willing to deny ourselves of? What are we willing to sacrifice? And I'm not just talking about bad things that you should be denying yourself of and sacrificing already. I'm talking about things that are neutral or perhaps even good. What are we willing to, to say no to and to let go of that someone else might not be tripped up, that someone else might grow closer to Jesus, that someone else might be saved? That's the question. We typically view freedom as the absence of restraint to do what we want. But in God's kingdom, freedom is never that. No, freedom is power to do whatever results in the glory of God in the salvation of others. That's free. Freedom is power in the economy of God. You know, Paul says something shocking in Romans 9. I'm actually going to invite you to flip there if you want or swipe there, whatever works for you. Romans 9 if, this, if these verses don't shock you, then I don't know what will, but it shocks me, it challenges me. Verses one through three, look at, look at what he says here. With Christ is my witness. That's about as solemn of, a, of an opening statement as it gets. Hand on my heart, hand on the Bible, God is my witness, this is the truth. I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. Did you hear what he just said? I would, if I could, I'd give away the single greatest thing in my life if it meant they would come to know you. Now, before you and I start getting cynical about that, because it's one of those things almost sounds like a platitude, doesn't it? Boy, Paul must be really holy. <laughs> we're like, we're so impressed by that that we're skeptical. There's no way. There's no way he means that. That's just something he's saying to, you know, with God as my witness. You know, we can almost, we project onto him this like condescending kind of fake, you know, plasticky, you know, persona. I mean, they all saw it in the Pharisees. That, wasn't that the whole Pharisees shtick? You know, the perfectly whitewashed, they knew all the right things to say and all the right things to do, but really inside they were, they were dead. It's not Paul here. <laughs> Listen to me. Before we get cynical, I want you to think one more time about the cross of Jesus 
where the Son of God so entered into the sinful condition of man, and not just the condition, our condition, my condition. He so took upon himself the sins of all humanity that, it's, that it, the scriptures say he became sin. That he experienced the absolute relational separation from the father that sin produces. You can hear it in his cry of dereliction, can't you? Why have you forsaken me? We're talking a relationship. Face to face. Perfect, holy, loving communion that is from eternity past. Yet in that moment, in that moment, Jesus willfully chose to give it away. Why? Isn't that the real pain of the cross? Wasn't the whip or the the crown of thorns? Wasn't the splinters in his back? It wasn't the nails in his hands or the spear in his side. No, the real pain of the cross is his being cut off from the Father. Why? That you and I might be saved. Do you see it? Do you see the heart of God? The absolute other orientation of the heart of God? Do you hear it in the voice of Paul? Who's telling us don't do anything that gets in the way of anyone to Jesus. Do whatever it takes for their ultimate good at whatever cost to yourself. No matter how you have to give something up, even good things in your life, whatever it means. Listen, life does not come unless something dies. It's a, it's a, it's a principle of reality because reality is created after the, the image of the creator who is within himself, self-giving love. Persons who never focus on themselves. There wasn't a second in the life of Jesus where he wondered about what people thought about his reputation when he went into the next town. Or he said or did a thing, you know, got to be nice to the people, got to say the right, got to be political here, got to do something that benefits me in some way. I have a hard time connecting with that because I struggle with that all my life being selfless in everything I am and do. Jesus never struggled with it for a second. It was never a struggle. He was tempted, never a struggle. And he was so given over to the glory of God and to the good of you and me, and by the way, those are always connected, that he even experienced what you and I rightly deserve. Like a parent whose child's body is ravaged with cancer, who would in a heartbeat, they wouldn't even think about it, they'd trade their health, they'd trade their life in a second if they could take away the cancer. No questions asked. That's the heart of God. Jesus became what you and I are, that you and I by grace might become what he is. Sons and daughters of God. And that attitude, that disposition lies at the heart of true, Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-enabled Christian freedom. A freedom that says, am I so free from myself? Am I so willfully, fully surrendered and consecrated to God? Am I so radically others-oriented that whether I eat or drink, and whatever I do, I do it all for the glory of God? It's never for me. It's never for you. It's all for him all for his glory. May all the glory of my life go to him in every aspect. Whether I'm up here in front of you with all the lights shining on me or whether I'm in the darkest place that no one else in the world will ever see, everything I do is for the glory of God. 
Can we be so free from the self that we would do nothing ever that would cause another to stumble, even if it means giving something up in our lives? Even if it means making a sacrifice, being exposed to discomfort or injustice, even if it means giving our lives away that they may be saved to win as many as possible. That's why we revere missionaries. That's why they go and why they put themselves literally, completely in the hands of God. Why? So that someone may be saved. Paul says in chapter nine, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ, doing everything I can to save some that I might spread the good news and share in its blessings. And then he looks at you and me, chapter 11, verse one, and says, now imitate me as I imitate him. Lord, I thank you for the example of pastor theologians like Paul and other greats throughout the history of your church. Thank you for the the days that Rebecca and I had a week and a half ago at the Cove, sitting next to the daughter of Billy Graham at a breakfast. That was cool. (laughs) Standing in a pulpit that he would have preached from. Not a man who was ever focused on himself, but was focused on you. And as a result of his yielded life, millions, millions came to faith and continue to through the legacy of, of other preachers who have, are the result of his life and ministry. Lord, we're not glorifying Billy Graham today. We're glorifying you who can take the simple people in the world like Billy Graham and, and change the world from the inside out because you change us from the inside out. Lord, change me. Change my heart. Cleanse and purify all my desires and my intentions and my attitudes and thoughts and actions so that I'm able, not by my own strength or by my own determination, but by you in me, that I might be able to bring you glory in all of my life. Not glory that you need, but glory that you deserve. Lord, so transform my heart and my mind and all that I am that nothing I am or say or do would come between you and someone coming to you. Lord, do a work in me that I could be so radically focused on another that I would do whatever it takes to bring about the ultimate good in their lives, that they would be saved. Lord, I don't fully understand Romans 9, 1 to 3. But I'm convinced it is a clear picture, not just of your heart, but of a, but of a human heart that has been transformed by your grace. Lord, Paul's life and witness today is a testimony of what you can do. Lord, may it be so of us. Do it in me. Do it in us today. Not for our sake ever, Lord, but for yours and for the salvation of your world. In Christ's name, amen.